The stories you tell your dentist. Have you ever worried where they might end up? Maybe you should. At least if your dentist happens to be the celebrated Egyptian writer, Ala Alaswani. I learn about life through my patients. Of course, you could tell me, how could you learn if the patients keep their mouths open? My answer is, I'm different as a dentist. But dentistry is not the only thing Alaswani is concerned with. At the core of this conversation with Mark Christoph Wagner was the topic of democracy and the future of the Arab regimes. Religion should be a personal, private issue. The state should not have any religion. This is the only way to achieve democracy. I'm Pike Melinovsky, and you're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast. For the next half hour, Ala Alaswani invites you on a guided tour through a privileged upbringing in 60s Egypt, into his dental chair and onto the Tahir Square of 2011, where the Arab Spring awoke his country to a fight for democracy. Alaswani, in your, all your books, you can feel your love for your country. At the same time, right now, you're not living in your country. If I ask you a very general question to describe your country for me, Egypt, what kind of a country is that? Well, you, your country is your mother, so you will always describe your love for your mother and not your mother herself, because uh, you're not able to, to evaluate uh, in an objective way, your mother, because the love is very, very strong. So uh, your country is your mother, and you feel that uh, with all the problems and defects, probably, of your mother, she's the best mother. Tell me about your upbringing. What has formed you? In um, You were born in 1957, you can see your life has seen many changes in Egypt as well. Um, what has formed you in your childhood? Well, I, uh, I was privileged, as a matter of fact. I come from uh, an upper middle class, so we were never poor. And uh, I was an only child, so everybody cared about me. I had a wonderful father who was a writer himself. So he taught me many useful things. And he just coached me as a writer because he told me, you're talented, but you should work very hard. And uh, I was in a French school. I learned French and Arabic for the, f for the first time when I was four years old. So French for me is my second language and my second culture. That has been useful to me, very useful to me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I cannot complain. I think very much uh, loving mother. Uh, so I had a wonderful childhood. And of course, uh, being a writer was a dream of my life. Uh, I always dreamed of being a writer. And my father all the time gave me advices. Uh, and because of him, I became a dentist. Because he told me that you should have another profession to protect your 
exactly he said that. Your writing field, you know, to be independent, to write whatever you want, and uh, not to make your living from writing, otherwise you'd be in trouble. So you, 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 should, you better have another profession. So that's how I became a dentist. Did you grow up in a kind of oasis? Because you said there was this French community, you grew up with Western culture, with a lot of books, um, and probably also a, a privileged class. Um, how was your connection with kind of the Egypt society? That's uh, something very important. My father thought about it because I was in a bubble, as a matter of fact. I was in the French uh, milieu. I was always with the uh, sons and daughters of the rich people of the country. Uh, most of them, they uh, went after that abroad to study. So my father noticed that and he intended to do that regularly is that he took me with him to very popular places to see his comrades. My, my friend was, my father was socialist. So, uh, and he asked me to go and to play in the street with the sons of his comrades. And he intended to show me very poor neighborhoods in Egypt. And the point, as he explained to me, that we are not, you know, the milieu you're living in, the bubble you're living in is not Egypt. So I'm going to show you Egypt so that you know, you know, the real Egypt, not the lucky Egypt. He used to, to use this term, the lucky Egypt, you see. So I think, uh, thanks to him, I went to the Cairo University where there everybody, all uh, parts of the society were there. And I was totally prepared uh, to see other people, to make friends from different social classes. And this is uh, because of my father. What role did books play in your upbringing? Oh, the books is... In, in our apartment, there, there were books mainly, and we lived beside the books, you see. And I can, and I can remember my father when he was writing, because he was a fiction writer too. And it was like my mother used to tell me, your father is writing. So, and I felt this moment when you write that, I remember my father, he was... He was with us, but he was not with us in the same time. He was somewhere else. And of course, I grew up and I knew how is it like to write fiction. So, of course, the books were very important. Culture, literature. My father uh, took me with him uh, to see them. By that time, the biggest names in culture in Egypt. And we, rec we received them in our house. And of course, there were discussions, very high level discussions, because they were the best writers and artists of the time. And I participated as a kid. And of course, I said nonsense, you know, but nobody made fun of me. They listened to me. 
they try to explain. So when I remember now my years of childhood, I am quite sure I was lucky. I was really lucky to be uh, in this house with this father and this mother and this atmosphere. Were there certain books that formed you more than others? My, uh, my father used to tell me, read this and this and this. And he told me, uh, do not read Fyodor Dostoevsky until you get to the college, until, until you will be 20 years old. Of course, if, you, if your father will ban you from something, you will do it. So I began to read Dostoevsky and I didn't understand anything. And I was caught. He came from outside and he found Dostoevsky in my room. And he said, I told you not to read this. I said, yes. And he said, don't be idiot. I'm telling you because this is the best novelist, the greatest one. And you will never be able to appreciate now. So you could have a reaction that will doesn't, it will never allow you to understand Dostoevsky. So I'm telling you, do not read Dostoevsky until the age of 20. This is for your good. If you'd like to read him, read him. So I didn't read him really. And I read Dostoevsky like, in, uh, because in 1978, 77, there were uh, uprisings in Egypt, and I was just in the university by that time, and uh, they closed the university. So I spent three weeks reading Dostoevsky for the first time. And by that time, my father had passed away. But I remember that I thought that how he was really right, because I found another word. Uh, and I say now, I teach creative writing, so I say to my students, you know, my friends, there are two kinds of people in this world, people who read Dostoevsky and people who did not read Dostoevsky. When and why did you yourself decide to become a writer? Very early. I don't know why, but my father was a writer. I was surrounded by writers. I felt like writing is very important. But I had a very early dream of being a writer. And I tried to write when I was a kid, and of course I wrote very miserable things. But uh, I tried all the time. Did you write um, because of yourself, because you wanted, or did you have a kind of a missionary purpose with literature from the beginning? You don't think about that, and uh, now after all this experience writing, I think there are people who are born writers, you see, because anybody in the street has his own experience in life, but very few people are able to see what happened to see and to analyze what happened, you know. So a writer is able to see and to feel and to express, to write down what he felt and what he saw. So I think you're a born writer. I mean, some many people are born writers, 
but for some reasons they cannot be writers. But I had the privilege to be the son of my father because he noticed very early that, according to him, I was talented. He said, you're talented. Mm -hmm. And if you are not talented, he said, I would have never told you that. But the talent is nothing. It's just the beginning. You should work, work, work to get what you want to be. Is it a combination of sensibility, of observing, but also discipline while writing? Because all your novels, they contain such a complexity that mirrors the complexity of society. Yeah, and both. I mean, it depends. You're asking me a question about you. people are born writers, right? But how they could be writers, this is something different. Of course, discipline. You cannot be a novelist, especially without discipline. I work every day. Every day. I feel... <laughs> I, I wake up at six o'clock and I feel like a boxer, you know. I begin writing at seven till one p.m. I have been doing that for 30 years. And without this discipline, I would have never been able to produce 600-page novel because for poets, they don't need this discipline, the poets, because they are inspired and the text is not big. I'm not saying something against them, of course. Poetry is a, is a great uh, art, but they don't need this discipline. You, if you write 600-page novel, and you'll present 20 characters and four or five uh, plot lines, stories. You cannot work like this. You should be disciplined. And uh, I learned that and uh, I have been doing that and that's why I produced, I have produced uh, those novels. And then you heard some stories in your dentist chair. Absolutely. This has been an inspiration for characters. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But here I must be very clear that I do not use the stories of my patients to write stories because this is mm -hmm. uh, against the ethics of, uh, of the profession as a dentist. And it's not, uh, you know, I don't do that. Mm -hmm. But... I learn about life through my, uh, my, uh, my patients. It's true that, of course, you could tell me, how could you learn if the patients uh, keep their mouths open? Or they, they are not able to talk. Uh, my answer is I'm different as a dentist. Uh, I listen to them. I meet them. I give them time. And they become my friends. So I learn through them. Let me ask you a bit of a philosophical question. You know, Egypt has this great ancient culture. You have the Library of Alexandria. You have inspired us Europeans with math and all those great inventions also in agriculture. Looking at Egypt society today, you sometimes think it's, it's a bit away from realizing its potential. And then looking at your books, there are some certain themes that go again and again, religion, corruption, power. 
Would you say that the Egyptian society also is a fight between books, between kind of the books of wisdom and the books of religion, not as books in itself, but how they are interpreted? Absolutely. This civilization is pushing us to progress to an opening and on the other side we have barriers and those barriers are two barriers, two main barriers. The military dictatorship and the Wahhabism. I don't know if you're familiar with this term. The Wahhabism is the Saudi or the desert, the desert interpretation of Islam. And this is the most aggressive, far behind, undemocratic, violent interpretation of the religion. It was just in the Saudis had that until the late 70s. What happened is that because of the war, 1973, the price of oil had been doubled many times, giving to the Gulf countries unprecedented power. It's like your salary is 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 euros, and all of a sudden you're paid 150,000 euros for the same job. The Gulf countries, without no, no one single exception, is an alliance between the royal family and the Wahhabi Imam. Accordingly, any promotion for Wahhabism will be very good for the political stability of the Gulf. If you get back to Mohammed bin Salman, uh, very interesting uh, interview in the New York Times. He said, we powered, we paid billions of dollars to promote Wahhabism. And that's exactly what happened in Egypt and everywhere in the world, you know, including Denmark, everywhere. You have mosques, and mosques are sponsored by the Wahhabi. They send a Wahhabi imam, he's teaching very aggressive interpretation of the religion, and then the people, even the people, anybody, eh, will take this as if it was the religion. Accordingly, we, we have been losing, as Egyptians, losing our identity, our civilized vision of the world, our cosmopolitan uh, vision of the world, uh, our history, the art, we have been losing the art because they believe that, the Wahhabism believes that the cinema, uh, the libozar, the fine arts, everything is against God. And of course, no wonder, because they never produced any art whatsoever. You know, when it comes to Egypt and Iraq and Syria and all those civilization, old civilizations produced art. So uh, we have this problems, and it's one struggle, it's not two struggles, against Wahhabism, against military dictatorship. 
So it's not a contradiction between democracy and Islam, but between democracy and a certain interpretation of Islam, which is Wahhabism. If I believe that to, to, to achieve democracy, and this happened, but not people, many people don't know. This happened in Egypt between 1924 and 1954, when Nasser canceled the democratic system. When you talk about democracy, the religion should be a personal issue. You're Christian, you're Jew, you're Muslim, you're Buddhist, you're whatever. This is home. You go out of your house, you become a citizen. And we did that before. You see, it's not something we, uh, we just, we're just inventing now. Egypt had been like this. So the fact that the political Islam is uh, just presenting a fake history to recruit young people who know nothing, that there is the Islamic State and it happened, and you know, the Ottoman Empire was the Islamic State. Of course, it wasn't the Islamic State, the Ottoman Empire, it was. We have been massacred as Egyptians the same way the Armenians were massacred, everybody was massacred, the Greek people was, you know, religion should be a personal private issue. The state should not have any religion. This is the only way to achieve democracy uh, because the formula is very, to me, very, very clear. Politics plus religion equal fascism. What happened in 2011, because your latest novel is a celebration of a young generation that acted differently compared to their fathers and grandfathers? Yes, that's exactly what happened. We, we, we cannot understand what's happening in Egypt and in the Arab world without the, 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 this statistic that 65% the Arab population, 65, are under the age of 35 years. So more, 65% are young people. That's why I'm very optimistic. These young people are very different from their parents in every aspect. They are really connected to the world uh, through social media. They have the role model. They want a state just fair, without corruption, and, and they don't accept compromises. They don't look the, uh, for individual solutions. Their parents uh, found individual solutions. It's like when you're humiliated, when you're, uh, you don't have your fair opportunity for work in your country. This happened in Egypt, 30 years, it happened then you find a contract in the Gulf. You will get, and you spend the Gulf 20 years to be able to raise your kids. The young generation refused to do that. And they were very clear. Uh, this is our country. Uh, we're going to fix it. And we're absolutely uh, willing to pay the price. And it should be fixed. And now, you see. So I believe that all the Arab regimes are expired. 
they will fall one after another. Today, tomorrow, the next week, the next, they done, they are done, you know. And they don't understand that the repression, more and more repression, will never work because you have a new generation with new conscious. And you could follow what's happening now in Egypt, September 20, in, uh, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Sudan, and it will continue. Final question. Um, you mentioned that literature and politics are two different spheres. But I feel that literature is important though. For example, reading your novel, I get an understanding of your society which I didn't have before. And I have asked myself many times, why is there such a big gap between Europe and Egypt and all the Middle East, even though we historically are tied so close together? Uh, we have prejudices towards each other. We fear Islam um, because we only kind of uh, equalize Islam with its extreme form. Wahhabism. How, Wahhabism. How can, how can literature help your own people and country and maybe even uh, shape a bigger understanding between Western culture and everybody in the Middle East? Well, literature is a human language, and uh, this is what you said is a basic uh, objective literature. Literature is teaching us that we could be different in color, different in religion, different in everything, but we are basically human beings. So the fact when you read a novel and uh, you feel, uh, you know, you, you understand the suffering of a character, you will never think of this character as Muslim or Christian or Jew or whatever. So it's, it's, a, it's a message or I would say it's a mission of literature to teach us that we are all human beings and uh, we don't have to make barriers. And literature is overcoming the barriers. And the fact that um, my works are, my novels are translated to seven languages read in 100 countries all over the, the world. The fact that I come here or I go to Norway or any, any Western country and you feel readers who understand the problem of a poor Egyptian veiled girl who never went out of Egypt. But your readers, my readers understand. And this is how and why literature is a great art, because the message has been sent and transmitted, because we are all human beings. So the fact that people are scared, yes, they are scared, and they have, uh, they have stereotypes on both sides. And the best way to do that is to produce more and more literature and art and human art, and also to be objective, you see. The fact that everybody uh, on both sides uh, has a tendency to victimize himself or herself, it will, not, it, would, it will never help anybody, you know. So 
Yes, Wahhabism is a very dangerous interpretation of Islam. Of course, I say that. I was born Muslim, so I'm not saying that to the Westerns, right? By the way, 85% of the victims of terrorist attacks in the last 10 years were not white Christian, you know, people. They were either Africans, like Nigeria, or uh, Arabs, or Muslims, or whatever. So we're talking about a, a, a real danger. But at the same time, this doesn't justify racism against everybody. So we should... I think literature is a wonderful tool to get people feel that they are basically human beings. Very shortly, you're living in New York right now. Yes. Will you be able to return to Egypt? It depends. You know, it depends because not only because Mr. Sisi made a military case against me, uh, and I say Mr. Sisi because I know that he is the one who decides. He's pretending not to know, but he's the one who decides. So he made a military case against me because this latest novel. Uh, but I must tell you also that when you live in this kind of dictatorship, you feel humiliated. It's like the message by the dictatorship is that you are nothing. I will do whatever I want. We had dictators before, but this is the worst one, you know. So it doesn't make me feel comfortable. Alaa Alaswani visited Louisiana Literature Festival in 2019, where he was interviewed by Mark Christoph Wagner, who was also the producer. The interview was edited by Klaus Elmer. The Louisiana Literature Podcast is produced by the Louisiana Channel. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. Associate producer is Esther Kongstel. You can watch and listen to hundreds of other interviews with great writers and artists from all over the world at the Louisiana Channel. That's channel.louisiana.dk. I'm Pike Malinowski. Thanks for listening. <laughs>